0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Dr. Cassie Smith about her book titled Race and Respectability in an Early Black Atlantic, published by LSU Press in 2023, which I think does a whole bunch of things in a very concise book. It's quite impressive how many things get put into this. um, Tracing the ideas of respectability, uh, how these are developed in a number of different places around the Atlantic, um, through letters, through autobiographies, through all sorts of things, um, in ways that maybe go earlier back in history than we're used to thinking about respectability and respectability politics. So Cassie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Podcast to tell us all about it.
1: Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you.
0: I am too, and I'd love to start us off with a bit of an introduction of yourself and an explanation of why you decided to write this book. Um, sure.
1: Okay, so um, I am an associate professor of English and an associate dean of academic affairs in the Honors College at the University of Alabama in the U.S. Um, I have been in Alabama for the past 13 and a half years and all of my research, the things I teach about and study are basically all focused on early Black African cultures in what we call the early Atlantic world. So that's going to be all of those communities that touch the Atlantic Ocean. So on um, the coast of Europe, off the coast of West Africa, and of course in the Americas, the Caribbean. And I decided to write a book about respectability, politics, um, for a number of reasons, but probably the most prominent reason or the one foremost is an incident that happened back in 2012 when the teen Trayvon Martin was um, shot and killed by a community vigilante in, in Florida. and. I was really struck like as I was engaging in conversations with family and friends and with other people in my various communities, how we were all having these conversations about what happened. And there were some people who were saying that it all could have been avoided if Trayvon Martin had just answered the questions that was being posed of him. Um, So there was this idea that he misbehaved because he was being disrespectful to an adult. And those comments really, really struck me because I was... It was just a moment where you have this teenager, he's been killed, um, and the conversations are about whether he behaved appropriately. And it just made me really start thinking more about why it is that Black communities are so invested in respectability politics when they result in things like we saw with Trayvon Martin. It, It can literally come down to a matter of life and death. And I knew from having done all of my research, my PhD in graduate school on early Black cultures, that this idea about respectability is something that Black communities have been wedded to for centuries, even though we don't really talk about it as being the centuries-long obsession. And so I just, I decided that my next book would address that theme and really shed a light on how long-standing our preoccupation with respectability politics has been.
0: Thank you for giving us that background um, and helping us locate in some ways where the book is focusing on. Can we talk a bit about when, what time period you chose specifically, and how you decided on this?
1: Yeah, so most of the book is centered on the 18th century. I do talk about a couple moments that come a little bit earlier because I want to make it clear that these ideas about what is respectable, what's not respectable and mapping it onto black cultures is something that that arises in tandem with the transatlantic slave trade. And we know the transatlantic slave trade emerges in the 16th century. So I do have a couple moments that locate us in the um, 16th century, but for the most part, my chapters are focusing on the 18th century. And I do this because that's the century when people who study early African-American literature point to as like the beginning of of a Black writing tradition. So that's the century in which we start to see people of African descent writing and publishing texts in English um, in what will become the Americas. And so I wanted to look at how this, what we have considered to be this first generation of Black writers are grappling with things about respect and respectability in their texts. And it's also on the American side of things when we um, see the enlightenment movement really start to take hold in what will become the United States.
0: Mm. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense for good reasons to focus on this time period. I think what you've explained to us so far raises some of these things implicitly, but let's surface them fully on the table. What are the three big interventions that you're making in the book?
1: Yeah, so the number one, my primary
0: intervention is to
1: um, ask us to really think about how it is and why it is and when it is, people of African descent become invested in respectability as a coping strategy, as a response to racism and white supremacy and to slavery. And the conventional wisdom or conversations locate this preoccupation with respectability at the end of the 1800s. And so in my book, I want to point out, first of all, no the way that we are thinking about respectability, our focus on respectability goes back centuries prior to the 1800s. So that's the first intervention, is just to point out that respectability, just to historicize respectability politics in Black cultures. Uh, My second intervention is to reimagine or reconceptualize early African-American literature as coming out of this obsession with respectability politics. And so that's why it was important that I focus on these writers from the 18th century to show how respectability comes up in not just what Black people are writing, but the very genres in which they're choosing to write. And my third intervention is about the early Atlantic world, more gen- more generally. So again, I said a few minutes ago that my research focuses on Black cultures and how they emerge in the early Atlantic world. And when we think about the early Atlantic, we largely think about it in terms of what Paul Geroy theorized back in the 1990s that the Black Atlantic was this, you know, um, the, the the routes that African diaspora took that was initiated by the, the slave trade. So all of the places that they go to and the ways that they circulate through the Atlantic with Africa as the point of departure. And I'm making an argument that the Black Atlantic actually incorporates Africa as one of those routes, one of, of those points um, in this African diaspora. So it's not just a point from which Black folks depart is a point that they also return to. And when they return, they take with them ideas and cultural practices that developed and evolved in other locations of the African diaspora. And I use respectability as a kind of trope to show what that movement looked like
0: all right well that gives me so many things to ask you about in (laughs) more detail yeah yeah Um, it was a (laughs) mouthful i mean it's great i just have to choose kind of which thread to pull first so uh i think the first one i'm going to ask about is this idea of uh choice of genre and form used by black african authors so how did respectability influence those choices yeah, so what, the, the, the very first thing that
1: it, um, the, fir- the very first way we see respectability, influence choices is just in the decision to write. Because prior to this moment, so 1760 more or less, becomes um, the time when we start seeing black folks either t- telling their life stories to an aminuasis, or they are picking up the pen and writing themselves. And so the fact, the very fact, that they put pen to paper is a movement toward respectability, because they can then write themselves into existence. And they can write in contrast to the Enlightenment, um, racialized notions that, you know, Black people lack the intellectual capacities to be able to craft texts, to be able to craft um, literature. And so by placing themselves in the position of author. They are saying, you know, I am human. I do have intellectual capacities. I, I am rational. Um, and so that's one way that they kind of, you know, counter the enlightenment notions of, um, of race. More specifically, with the genre. So, take for example, we have um, Phillis Wheatley. She's one of the figures I talk about in the book, and of course, you know, she was most noted for writing poetry. In fact, um, this past year was the 250th anniversary of the publication of her one and only volume of poetry. She was the first person of African descent to publish a book of poetry in um, in English in what will become the United States. And if you look at how that the, the the maneuvers she makes in her poems, in the kinds of poems that she chooses to write, in some ways she is evoking the, the classics. And by doing that, she is signaling to people that she has the intellectual capacities um, that make her human. and she's and she's also very much aware of the fact that she's a representative figure. So if she is illustrating her humanity through her poetry, she is by extension illustrating the humanity of black Africans at large. So that's one way that in in my second chapter of the book, I show how the moves she's making in her poetry speak to her efforts to counter, notions about Black in humanity and how she's using respectability as a prominent thing for doing so.
0: Mm. I want to talk more about her in a moment, but we've brought up the Enlightenment kind of enough times that I think we should poke at that one first, I think. So can you tell us more about how the Enlightenment movement is influencing the development of respectability politics in Phyllis's work, but also more broadly?
1: Yeah, so more broadly, with the Enlightenment, that's really where we start to see, you know, this thing that we know of today as race start to emerge. It, it's not to say that that race as an idea is created in the 18th century, but the way that we've come to understand what race is um, starts to formalize in the 18th century, particularly at the end of the century, where it becomes this kind of pseudo scientific thing that you can locate within the body, and it's represented in the somatic, like physical differences of humans, which is to say, you know, we have this this thing called skin-based um, race, and with it comes all of these notions about um, the values or or placing people in a hierarchy based on skin color, right? So the darker your, your skin is, the lower to the bottom of that hierarchy you are. And it also becomes a really um, prevailing rationale for things like slavery. Um, And of course, with with that also come certain laws. And I'm talking here specifically within a colonial American and then like a very young United States context here. Um, There are all kinds of laws that are targeted at darker skinned people. And all of this is coming out of the enlightenment. And so, One thing that I address in the book is how with the enlightenment, you have these thinkers, these philosophers who come along like John Locke, for example, Immanuel Kant, um, John Jacques Rousseau, who are talking about the social contract. And they're making an argument that the ways or they're theorizing that societies cohere because the individuals in a society all get together and they agree to live together in a society. So there's this kind of contract by which they all agree to live. And the contract is designed to, um, to maximize their life, liberty and their right to own property while also protecting those same rights and everybody else. And so All of that's coming out of the Enlightenment along with these racialized notions about human difference, and they come together in a way that then creates the exclusion of people who are located at the very bottom of those racialized hierarchies from actually participating in the social contract, or actually from being a part of the society. And so what I talk about in my book is that you have these black writers in the 18th century who are using texts, who are using these literary forms to first of all point out that the social contract is this really exclusive thing and to advocate for the inclusion of black people within the social contract. And so then they portray themselves as respectable, which is to say that they model the behaviours and the mores of the people who are part of the social contract as a way to say, look, I am just like you. So I should be part of the social contract as well.
0: Mm. So can we add another word into this then? Um, assimilation, which becomes a huge part of respectability politics if we look kind of later on in the tradition of it. Um, But you talk about in the book how we can really see this in this period, for example, through the work of Phyllis Wheatley, um, to explain kind of why assimilation becomes such a part later on of respectability politics.
1: Yeah, sure. And, you know, that's one of the things that I find most fascinating about Phyllis Wheatley. So, you know, for for decades in the 20th century, she was dismissed. She was disregarded as a bona fide, um, you know, figure of study in early American literature. And then, you know, probably like around the starting in maybe the 1970s and then into the 80s and 90s, scholars came back around and did start to take her her work more seriously. But the primary reason that they were dismissive of her work is that, you know, like the mainstream um, literary scholars said, oh, you know, um, she's just, you know, she is parroting um, these forms from earlier periods. Um, her work is very staid. Um, you know, it's not imaginative. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just like it, it, it lacks creativity. It lacks technique. And for those who are specifically focused on African-American literary studies, they dismissed her because they saw the content of her poetry as largely hegemonic supporting you know these white supremacist notions of black inferiority and you know they just didn't find her worthy enough as an object of study. But then you come into the 1970s and 80s and scholars really start to take another look at Phyllis Wheatley and they realize that there's a lot in her poetry that is subversive like it's, it's really, really complex. You can't just take what she says, At face value or read her work with the grain, you also have to be willing to read against the grain when you do that you really see how she's using poetry in these really. um, crafty artistic and also political ways to speak to her 18th century moment, and one of the things she does is through assimilation so. With she she models the poetic forms and traditions of the day. And yes, on the one hand, like she's doing this because, you know, that's just what everybody else was doing, right? If everybody else is writing elegies, she's going to write an elegy too, because you know, that's just the form of the day. And you have to be willing to accept that the assimilation is Phyllis Wheatley finding an entryway into the conversation. But the important thing is that Like today, we kind of give assimilation a bad rip, right? Or at least in communities of color where, oh, you know, somebody somebody is assimilating, they're just trying to be white. They aren't, you know, proud to be who they are, so they're trying to be somebody else. But what Phyllis Wheatley is doing in the 18th century is she's using assimilation to gain an entryway into the conversation, and then she is using it to make blackness more visible. So, uh, you know, put another way, she's not trying to disappear behind her poetry or quote, become more white. She's trying to make blackness more visible as a category of being. And that's one of the things that I talk about um, in the book about how she how she embodies these certain tenets of respectability as a way to make blackness more visible, not less visible.
0: Mm. Hmm. What an interesting um addition and kind of rereading that helps us illuminate that. So thank thank you for telling us about Phyllis Wheatley. Um, I'd like to ask you to tell us about uh, someone, I think at the time certainly quite visible, but who's uh Story. I mean, his story tells us a lot of things, but one of the things that it tells us that you talk about in the book is the insidious nature of respectability, which I think is a really helpful phrase for this whole discussion. So can you tell us about this in the context of the very famous Equiano?
1: Yeah, yeah, so exactly what you just said, like respectability politics is a really insidious thing and again, you know, I, I I started out this conversation talking about that moment in 2012 with Trayvon Martin, so that respectability is this thing where you can believe so wholeheartedly in this idea, in this coping strategy, that you will accept the murder of a human being because they aren't dressed appropriately, or because they don't say the right words, um, and so. I look at how respectability works and, and how, just how insidious it is in the example of Alali Equiano because he's one of those figures who seemingly does everything right, right? So he is born free on the West Coast of Africa. He's captured from his homeland. He is sold into slavery um, and largely works for masters throughout the Caribbean. He also um, is traveling to, Charleston and Savannah in, um, in Georgia. And so, while he's doing all of these things, he is checking off all of those boxes. Like, you know, we talk about the Enlightenment and the social contract. He's checking off all of those boxes that should presumably make him a part of the social contract. He learns how to read and write. He learns a trade. He becomes this, you know, this sea mer- merchant. Um, he converts, importantly, like conversion. He he, he becomes Christian and gets baptized. Um, so he does all of the things. He, he works hard. He's thrifty um all all of these things that you're taught that in order to be a bona fide human participant in the social contract he's doing all of those things but ultimately even though he is embodying all of these tenets of respectability it doesn't really produce the kind of liberty that should be his you know, just by right of being a human being, and he talks a lot in his narrative about those moments where, even once he saves up enough money to purchase his freedom from his former enslaver, he still has experiences where he is, um, where he is treated very badly. Right, he is nearly beaten to death um, once when he is on a plantation in Savannah, Georgia. He talks about how, um, you know, buyers try to cheat, cheat him out of his merchandise. He is the victim of, of theft by um, several white men while he's traveling through the Caribbean. So there are all of these instances of mistreatment. And to add insult to injury, there's no legal recourse any of it. Because Black people, whether you are enslaved or free, and particularly in the Caribbean context that he's talking about, you are invisible before the law. So he has no recourse because, again, Black people are outside of the social contract. And so I talk about how respectability is this thing that Black people continue to um, to gravitate toward because, you know, like, what else is there? The thing about respectability is that it gives us this false sense of security that we can control what happens to us by how we behave. And, and the story of Equiano kind of you know proves the lie about respectability politics. And mm-hmm. the really fascinating thing about his narrative that we don't talk about nearly enough is that it's not just his story he's talking about. He's also giving us examples of how this works in the lives of other Black people in his community or in his larger social circle. So, even they, like, he's actually lucky because he can work enough and save up enough money to buy his freedom and, you know, with it have some kind of mobility. And he does, I mean, if, if we just think about it in terms of his financial situation, he does experience an improvement. But there are other Black people living in the Caribbean who work just as hard as Equiano and don't have nearly the results that he has.
0: Hmm. A powerful example indeed. I want to make sure, though, that we uh, pick up on, as, as I said, the many threads you gave us in the beginning, um, but particularly the one that talks about uh, the West Coast of Africa as not just being a point of departure, but also somewhere to return to. So. Can we talk about how respectability shaped both the plans and the realities of the creation of the colony of Sierra Leone?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And
0: I mean, I, I could write a whole book about
1: <laughs> Sierra Leone. I could um, read it. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I had to limit myself to these um, two chapters in this particular book. But so the way this whole, the the reason respectability matters is that You have all of these philanthropists in England who are funneling resources, and in some cases, you know, their own personal resources, like in the case of Grandpa Sharp. He is dedicating his own money to helping to establish a settlement in Sierra Leone. They want to make sure that the settlement is going to work. And so what that means for them is making sure that they have people who are populating the settlement who are, quote, of good character. Now, initially, in when this thing first starts in like the 1780s, in, in, the, in the mid-1780s, they just want bodies. Like anybody who will sign up to go, you know, they put them on the um, ship. But very, very quickly, they start to think that, You know maybe we should be concerned about the kind of people who are populating this settlement and you start to see how when they are creating advertisements and they're circulating the advertisements in um the us and in the uk they are they have the requirement that anybody wanting to move to the settlement they have to come with letters of recommendation And those letters of recommendation have to speak to their qualities. And so you can see just in how they are trying to build up the population for the settlement, that respectability is at the core of how they are choosing who gets to go to the settlement and who doesn't. And there's also the fact that particularly for that for those first couple years when the settlement gets started. So in 1987, I'm sorry, in 1787 and in 1788, people are talking about the settlement and they're talking about the character of the people who make up Provincetown or Province of of Freedom. And they're basically saying that these are people who aren't, they're lazy, they aren't willing to work hard, they aren't committed to the project, they want to, you know, sell all day rather than planting crops so that they can survive, they, they get a really bad reputation. A lot of it is unwarranted and it's a lot of it is, is racialized critique, but the point is people are paying attention to the character of these settlers. And the settlers themselves, the way they respond all of the criticism you see that they are just as concerned with respectability they actually are writing letters back to granville sharp in the um in in london and they're they're saying we are working hard here we are industrious we are going to church you know we are we are doing all of the um things so the respectability is coming from both sides
0: well, and can we add a third side to it? Uh, because you talk about in the book, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. In in the book, you talk about it's not just the settlers at, at, or the backers in places like London, but also local African actors as well. So what? how are they becoming involved in and influencing these debates about who is respectable and what that means?
1: Yes, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about King Nambana the second. Yes, so, and that's one of the things that I find most fascinating is that you have this space on the West Coast of Africa in, in present-day Sierra Leone. Um, and in this space, you have these, you have one group of Black Africans who have never previously stepped foot on the continent of Africa. Presumably, their ancestors had come from Africa, you know, been brought via the transatlantic slave trade and been enslaved in the Americas. And so, and that way, it's a kind of repatriation. Although this particular generation of of Black folks never had stepped foot in Africa before. So, So it's really their first time on this space. And they are interacting with Native Black Africans who had who had never been to the Americas. So it's a really interesting um, mix that you see in terms of what we think about encounters when you have these two kinds of Black Africans who are encountering each other. And so those Black Africans, those Black loyalists who are coming from the Americas are bringing with them these ideas about respectability that they pick up from you know by virtue of being enslaved and having come through the transatlantic slave trade and then you know having gone either up to newfoundland and in canada or going over to um to the uk so they are bringing these ideas about respectability about what it means to be of good character in a western context into this space in sierra leone and then you have them interacting again with these black african natives who have their own ideas about what respectability is and what it isn't. And the really interesting thing is that you have this one central figure in um, King Nyanbana II who is navigating and negotiating all of these, like, the the social politics of, this, of these encounters. And he's a fascinating figure because he decides pretty quickly that he is going to not necessarily assimilate, particularly not in the way that Phyllis Wheatley was thinking about assimilating, but he realizes that there is an advantage to modeling some of those practices that are coming over with these settlers to Sierra Leone. And one of those practices that he models is, you know, writing the friendly letter. And I put, you know, friendly letter in quote marks to say, you know, like, The thinking about the letter specifically in terms of the conventions um, outcome coming out of the UK and a Western context, so one of the first things he does is he appoints one of those settlers to kind of work for him as a secretary. So that person is writing the letters. Um, he's dictating to this person these letters and he sends the letters to the powers that be in the UK. Most often it's, um, it's e- either Granville Sharp or, um, or, or um, John Thornton who he's writing these letters to. And so he's doing it as a way to kind of position himself and to kind of shore up his own power base on the West Coast. Or Mm I should say in in, in that Sierra Leone area. Mm -hmm. So that's why I like to think about Africa as not just a point of departure. It is also being shaped by um, these, you know, this um, these kind of cultural moments that happen in other spots because people are coming back Mm -hmm. when they leave Africa. They don't stay gone. They -hmm. come back.
0: And, and the letters move around as well right you don't have to physically go to london to be part of these debates and make these arguments so exactly that's, it's such and a that's key the thing part of the book right and that's the thing that's
1: really fascinating about um king nambana is that he finds a way to
0: extend his power his reach mm. across the atlantic yes
1: mm-hmm.
0: no that that's that's brilliant i'm so glad you told us about that and um, if I could ask, before I ask about any potential next work, um, something that comes through so clearly in the book and in our discussion here is how kind of engaged you are with all the material and how many cool things that I'm sure probably <laughs> didn't get to make it into the book. Yeah. Um, and I'm always fascinated at anyone who gets to work in archives. Is there anything in the process of putting all this together and come, you know, investigating the pieces and then figuring out how they speak to each other? Is there anything that you found particularly surprising that kind of jumped out at you, um, even if it didn't make it into the book that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Um,
1: you know, I think that the most surprising things I found actually did make it into the book. And for me, um, one of those moments is, you know, going back to the Phyllis Wheatley chapter, one of the letters I've read that she writes to one of her supporters or mentors in the uk where she talks about how she feels like she's been abandoned by people she had considered friends um and it was surprising because i it, it was this really can well i'm interpreting it as a really candid moment where she talks about feelings and she says there were people who seemed to re- respect her at one point but then. You know her mistress dies, and then suddenly she calls on people, and they're nowhere. They are nowhere to be found. And I thought that was surprising because um, it really crystallized for me. Or that was a moment that let me know that I was on the right track, that I was making a, you know, a valid observation about what black people, what what was motivating black people in um, this 18th century moment. I'm trying to think about surprising moments that might not have made it into the book that's a really
0: good question and um <laughs> well the one you've told us is quite cool and in fact in a lot of ways especially satisfying because it did make it into the book yes it did <laughs> so thank you for <laughs> highlighting that one for us um i i do have one final question if you'll allow it uh the book is obviously pretty new. It came out in 2023. Uh, but is there anything you might be working on now or have your eye on to work on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview for us? Uh, you know, sure. So,
1: you know, again, like I, 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 I was saying before with the chapters on Sierra Leone, that could, be, that could have been a whole book. So I do think that I'm, I'm going to come back around to... Sierra Leone, again, and do some more work. I'm not quite sure how that's going to look in the next book, but I, I do know that in general, the topic for the next book is going to be sustainability and thinking about how sustainability as a trope, as a discourse, and as a material concern shaped the transatlantic slave trade. And what I mean specifically by that is um when we think about the when we think about slavery and uh, you know this movement the sale and hu- the business of selling human beings as chattel it inevitably links up with conversations about conservation and preservation and so in my next study i'm looking at how Black bodies are talked about within the context of sustainability, and not just how that shaped the um, transatlantic slave trade, but also how Black communities might have re- responded to these ideas about sustainability, uh, particularly in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries.
0: Okay, well, hopefully that's a book because we'd love to have you back and tell us all about that. Um, but in the meantime, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled. Race and Respectability in an Early Black Atlantic, published by LSU Press. Cassie, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. I, again, I appreciate
1: you for having me and I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the conversation